tell me what is astronomy and what does it tell us about the fundamental fabric of the universe? Okay, well, astronomy is um, the root word comes from the Greek word astron for stars. So um, it started out as study of the stars, and that's it's expanded, but it's pointed in the right direction. You know, it's looking out to the stars, and now we know there's far more out there in the universe than stars. So it's it's the study of basically the universe and the Earth's place in it. Um, we don't zero in and look at at um, you know, details of the Earth, but how the Earth fits into that bigger picture is part of it. Now, the issue of the fundamental fabric, what does astronomy tell us about the fundamental fabric? Um, I, it depends on, on what one's concept is of fundamental fabric. Um, it's sort of, you sort of think of that as kind of like something woven that holds everything together. And if, if one takes that perspective for fundamental fabric, then, then that fabric probably would be described as what we call gravity. That's what keeps everything together, um, allows bodies to orbit each other, allows galaxies to be assembled, allows clusters of galaxies to be assembled, and um, so so I would I would call, if I was looking for a fabric of the universe, I would turn to gravity. Um, but of course, there's mostly empty space um, between even the bodies in our solar system. Never mind moving between stars or from one galaxy to another. Um, so gravity. Uh, well, exactly what gravity is, is something that's continuously being refined. Um, in the early days when Isaac Newton developed all of his, you know, very sophisticated, new revolutionary ways of thinking about forces and gravity, it was a kind of thought that there was an action at a distance, and there's something here and something here, and magically there's information being transmitted between the two. But um, now with the view of, that Einstein has given us of um, what we call space-time, um, uh, there's, it's almost as though there's something that's there connecting all of the bodies in the universe, and the presence of mass distorts the shape of that space-time, but it's not really a tangible something that you can point to. So that, but that's still gravity. So, so I, I think in terms of what is the fabric of the universe, I would, I would point to gravity. Other people might have different answers. It's, astronomers don't normally think of the fabric of the universe, but it, I like that word because it opens up a, a new way of thinking about problems. <laughs> okay, a new analysis of the Hubble Space Telescope data finds that there are almost 10 times more galaxies in the universe than we ever thought there were, about true 2 trillion of them up from 200 billion. So what does this mean for astronomers? Yeah, well, this recent, uh, there was a paper published um, actually just within the last couple of weeks um, reanalyzing uh, data from the Hubble Space Telescope um, and looking, there, there's a lot going on in this, this announcement that there's um, you know, many more galaxies than we originally thought there were in the universe. Um, so part of it, you have to remember that when we look out in space, we're looking back in time because light takes time to travel from wherever it is. If it's the sun, it's eight minutes to get here. If it's across the galaxy, it's 100,000 light years to get here. So as we look at other galaxies, which is what this, this new result is about, the population of galaxies in the universe, as we look at other galaxies, we're looking that Andromeda is our closest galaxy um, companion, two million light years, two and a half million light years for the light to get here. But as we look further and further and further, we're looking millions of light years, hundreds of millions of light years, billions of light years. So out to the, the most distant regions that people are, are seeing galaxies now, um, it's, we're now talking about 
maybe 13 billion years, 12 billion years back in the past, not quite back to the time of the Big Bang, but, but almost there. And so what this study did was it's looking at the, the density of galaxies, the number of galaxies in a given volume of space, like how many are there in the volume of space here, and then I go further back, how many are there there, go further back, how many are there there. And so the result that there are, are so many more galaxies than we thought there were before, all of that, that large number of galaxies is all piled up back in the early days. So as you go back in time, the, the density, the number of galaxies in the volume is increasing. And it's most of that more galaxies is in those very early times. And the idea is that there are more galaxies because galaxies were just forming and they were smaller then. So the number of them were smaller, but then as time moves forward, they merge together. So what might have been 10 galaxies turns into one galaxy as you move forward in time. So it's a um, the publicity that came out about it was a little misleading, but it's actually an interesting scientific result um, from those of us who are interested in, in how galaxy formation occurred. Um, because this study was... Um, you know, really a, a very careful investigation of how the density of galaxies of different mass changes as a function of time as you go back. So it, it's not like all of a sudden our immediately local universe is filled with so many more galaxies than we thought there were before. That hasn't been a surprise. But as you go back in time, there's many more, but they were smaller, and then they're going to grow together to be bigger ones. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> okay. Um, That's fascinating, actually. Yeah. That's yeah, and an interesting yeah. piece of that. Well, astronomers have gotten really good at trying to um, present their results to the press, to the media, and they have you know press releases with lots of good pictures. But not surprisingly, you have to make the story a little oversimplified compared to what's actually there. So the little sound bites, and I hate to call them sound bites because. I think there's really excellent science writers out there that do a good job of describing what's going on, but you still, nobody wants to hear all the details about how this works. So if you're just looking for a little, you know, catchy phrase, then that's, that's what most people have heard about. But it is a very interesting result. Your research focuses on studying star formation within molecular clouds in the galaxy. So tell me what mysteries to the universe are solved by this area of study. Yes, well, I've been studying star formation for most of the time I've been at Smith, um, and our understanding of this process has changed dramatically over those decades. I'm now counting in decades since I've been here. Um, and when I first began this kind of work, um, we knew that there were stars that were young, um, and they seemed to be sort of I'm going to say hyperactive, you know, like adolescence. And we thought that all that activity was coming because the stars just hadn't really settled down. And then over the decades, as time went by, I don't want to go through all the history of it, um, just jumping into our modern um, understanding, it's very clear that when we look at the process of how stars form from these giant clouds of molecular gas in the galaxy, um, that stars and their planetary systems are all forming together. And there's quite a fascinating process for how that all works. You start off with, if you look in the galaxy, most of the, mat the visible matter that you can see is, is light from stars. And so the, the stars, but about 10% of the matter in the galaxy that we can see with radio uh, telescopes are these um, gas clouds, just 
gas and a little bit of dust. There are clouds in the sense that, you know, an airplane can fly through a cloud. These are just low-density things that you could easily fly through. But there's a lot of material there just spread out. And then there'll be a little, um, a little denser-than-average clump that'll just start to collapse from gravity. Gravity begins to pull it together. But it's also spinning. So in addition to getting smaller, it's spinning and it kind of flattens out into a pancake shape. And that little pancake shape thing um, in the center is the proto star what's going to turn into a star and surrounding it is what we're now calling a protoplanetary disk and we didn't see the disks back in the early days because you have to have um, you have to observe them with um, infrared and uh, radio telescopes that we weren't using at that time. So we were just looking at the optical light from the star, the visible light, where we see all this activity. Now we know that that activity wasn't from the star, but it's material from the disk falling onto the star like this, and there's jets of stuff coming out. But with respect to what's the bigger implication that everybody should care about, the bigger implication is it's very clear now, every time a star is formed, the same basic process is involved. Sometimes it'll turn into two stars, sometimes it'll turn into one star. But whether it's one or two stars, there's a disk of swirling material around it that will turn into a planetary system. And that means when you look out at the night sky and you see all those beautiful little twinkling lights, you're just looking at the stars, but they all almost certainly have planetary systems around them. And the fun part is the, the properties of these protoplanetary disks are not identical from one system to another, and therefore the kinds of planets that come out are not identical. So we have our solar system that we know and love and have a pretty good understanding of what all the bodies, NASA flies spacecrafts all around. We've been to all of all the bodies, major bodies in our solar system, even Pluto now. Um, but the kinds of bodies that we're starting to discover around other planets are, many of them are very different than the ones in our planetary system. And that has to trace back to the um, formation process, that the, the initial conditions are just enough different, that it's slightly different outcome for what comes out the other end. And that is work very much in progress. Um, how you go from making the protoplanetary disk, which those are the kinds of things that I'm involved in studying those, to the final uh, planetary system, there's a lot of uncertainties about how that happens. Uh, there's a whole nother set of, of uh, data that's coming in on projects that I'm not working on personally, but I certainly follow it, where we're finding direct evidence for those um, extrasolar planets, as they're called, after the protoplanetary disks have gone. And so we know that those planets are different from ours, and we know that the disks have a range of properties. So anyway, it's very fun, and it speaks to whether or not there's other bodies like Earth out there. So, I mean, what could be more interesting for people to wonder about is, are there other Earth-like planets out there? Are there other places where life has evolved? If so, what might that life be? I mean, given the frequency with which planets are formed, it seems that the chances for um, there be I mean, life-bearing planets is, is certainly worth considering. There's a lot of... Um, additional caveats that have to happen before you have the conditions right for life to evolve, but certainly the planets are there. And the life question is one we, we're not going to find the answer to for a while, but it's provocative, certainly. But my own work is just right there at the protoplanetary disk stage in my current project. I've worked on many different aspects of it over the years. My current project with my collaborators in, in Arizona, um, I'm uh, studying the way in which 
the disk itself is throwing material off into space. Um, some of it is being assembled into planets, but there's a lot of material that doesn't go into planets, and it's got to be cleared out because our solar system is not full of a bunch of junk. So uh, we used to think this, a wind from a star blew it out, but now it looks like there's a, it's like the disk is blowing out a wind itself. And so I'm studying that wind and trying to understand how that works um, to clear out the, all the gas and dust left over from the planet formation process. But it's fun. I've had students from Smith working with me on various aspects of this project. Um, so that's been a lot of fun, too. They uh, stimulate me and energize me, and <laughs> we, we have fun working on, on, on all the data. Yeah, the astronomy majors at Smith College um, have gone off into a number of different areas. And absolutely, some of them have gone on to um, uh, graduate school in astronomy. Um, some have become PhD astronomers already. If I just look at the students that I've been working with in just the most recent years um, that have done honors thesis projects with me, um, one of them is now at the University of Arizona. I'm uh, sorry, Arizona State University. She's in Arizona. Uh, this is Wanda Fang, and she... Um, uh, worked with me on the protoplanetary disks around young stars, and now she's looking at disks around dying stars, uh, called white dwarfs. But she can take a lot of the knowledge that she developed working on the young stars and, and now apply it. So, that, so that's very fun, and I like to hear about what she's doing. Um, another student who worked with me very closely on a lot of the, um, the material that's falling from the disk onto the star actually became... Uh, uh, high school physics teacher at the Northampton High School, and she's doing an outstanding job. Um, and she's sending a lot of her students to come take astronomy classes with me. So we've stayed in very close touch. And another one has gone off to be a, a teacher at a, um, a private school in Connecticut. So those are the ones I've worked with most recently. But um, students who hadn't worked with me but um, are, were astronomy majors are, uh, we've got one at um, graduate school at Santa Barbara. Um, we just had one graduate from Princeton a little while ago. Yeah, so we, there's, there's quite a lot of, of astronomers out there that have their roots at, at Smith College. And it's very fun to go to a professional astronomy meeting and to pull together the, the Smithies from many different, you know, eras. Um, and just to everybody get together and have coffee or lunch or something. So let's talk about the course you teach in Sky and Time. Um, and I'd love to hear more about the astronomical roots of clocks and calendars. Um, yes, I teach a, a class um, called Sky and Time. In fact, my other colleagues here also teach it, but I, I developed the course almost, oh, it's been more than 10 years ago. Um, my original motivation was I wanted to find a topic where students could sort of find their own way through the material. Astronomy can be very sophisticated, um, and you have to have so much physics and, and have a lot of math background, and, and I wanted something that was more accessible, where students could go in and make discoveries on their own. So that was one of my motivations, and it, this turned out to be a fascinating topic um, because this is... You can think of it as prehistoric astronomy. Astronomy, the way it was done before telescopes were invented, um, and this kind of astronomy happened all over the planet. Every civilization, whether it's a major civilization or just a small little village, I mean, everybody had to keep track of the seasons and you know when the rain was coming, when the snow was coming. So the, the need to, to find a way to keep track of time um, is a part of, of every, every human culture that's, that's ever um, existed. And there are some things that, you know, like the um, 
when the snow comes, it's like, okay, here's the snow, but you want to know when the snow is coming. Um, and, and so people learned relatively um, early on that you could make very simple observations of watching not just the fact that the sun comes up in the east and goes down in the west, but exactly where in the east it goes it comes up, and exactly how high in the sky it travels, and exactly where in the west it goes down, that that gives you the ability to create a calendar. Uh, you can do the same thing with the stars. That motion is more complicated because the whole sky is filled with stars, and which constellations we see at a given time of the year are always shifting, and over the course of a night are always shifting. But you can also turn your observations of stars into calendars. So the way that this class works is I, I ask the students to... Um, put themselves in the mindset of being somebody on the ground. You know nothing about our modern understanding of astronomy at all. You don't know that the Earth is a sphere that's orbiting the sun. You don't know any of that. You're just on the ground. The ground looks flat. I see these things coming up over there and going down over there. Make sense out of it. A lot of it is um, using uh, sky simulation software because it requires observing over a long period of time. But they can reproduce, it's like a little planetarium, they can reproduce the motions that you would see if you watched over a course of several decades. And then they have to figure out how they would invent a calendar, how they would invent a clock. And all of a sudden they realize that you can't just go to the store and, and buy a watch or buy a calendar. How, how would you do that yourself? How would you figure out the way to do it? So, so it's, um, it's kind of a discovery-based class. And um, by the end of the semester, they've learned enough of the basic um, celestial motions, which become quite involved the deeper you go, um, much more than, than people normally would um, have been exposed to just in you know, your daily life. But they've learned enough that they can then go and they can do research projects to see how different cultures created their different calendar systems, and there are many. I have one rule, which is you can't look at the history of the Gregorian calendar, which is the one that has been adopted all over the country, all over the world. Um, but any other calendar system is fair game, and there are so many others. And um, if they started to do that on day one, they wouldn't know enough astronomy to do it, but by the end of the semester they do. And, and so um, we end the class by with everybody giving presentations on the different kinds of calendar systems. And it's, it's very fun because it taps into the humanity of watching the sky and the way that people use emotions in the sky to tie back into um, that basic need to, to, um, to tell time. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely fun. I, I really like teaching that class. Compelling evidence is that most of the galaxy is dark matter. And have astronomers been able to detect this dark matter? And, and what's your take on the whole topic? Yes, it is definitely the case that um, the dominant matter in galaxies is not the light, it's not coming from the uh, light that we can see. This That we uh, look at the composition of galaxies, we see stars which shine in optical light, we see molecular clouds which shine in radio light. Um, so everything that we can see that shines, we can study with our telescopes. And it shines because of um, electromagnetic interactions of the particles, and that allows it to create light. So astronomers study light. We have a telescope, we collect light, and we observe what's there. And for many decades, we thought, what you see is what you get. There's, there's all these stars and gas clouds, and we thought stars were the fundamental you know, building blocks of the universe. And then people began to make some interesting observations having to do with orbits, gravity. So if you take the Milky Way galaxy, for example, and you measure um, how fast 
a star is moving, like the sun, as it goes around the galaxy, and you keep doing that further and further and further out, like you go in close to the center of the galaxy and figure out how fast it's moving, and then you go a little bit further out, how fast it's moving, go a little further out, how fast it's moving. So you're looking at the orbital information, which allows you to figure out how much mass is inside of each one of those different distances. And what you find is that in the inner part of the galaxy, things make sense. The amount of mass that is implied is kind of like how much mass I see coming from the light of all the stars. I was like, okay. But as I go further and further out in the galaxy, I find that there's not anywhere near enough stars to account for the, all the mass that has to be there to describe the orbits. And um, that material uh, we call dark matter because we don't know what it is. It's dark in the sense that it doesn't shine with any kind of light. Not visible light, not gamma ray light, x-ray light, radio light, nothing. There's no um, interaction um, with electromagnetic radiation, which means it's not normal what we call baryonic matter, protons, neutrons, electrons that, um, you know, that we're all made of, and that the Earth is made of, and that the Sun is made of. Um, it's some other kind of, of matter, and it's far more abundant than the baryonic matter. Um, so it was first discovered by watching orbital motions. In fact, um, an astronomer at Caltech back in the 1930s, Fritz Wicke, was looking at how galaxies themselves were orbiting in a cluster and realized, eh, this doesn't add up. If I look at how fast the galaxies are moving compared to how much mass I can see in the galaxy, there's missing mass. We used to call it missing mass. When I was in graduate school in the, in the 70s, we knew about the problem of missing mass. We all had to learn about it and just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, whatever, missing mass. We didn't really pay any attention to it. And then in the 80s, people like Vera Rubin um, was one of the pioneers, of certainly other people that were doing it too, um, began to uh, look at individual galaxies and carry out this process that I described. And it became very obvious that this, this missing mass problem was enormous, and so we began to call it dark matter at this point. We realized there had to be something. So we're gonna it's some kind of matter because it's, interacting with gravity, but it's not shining, so we're going to call it dark. Um, and so what is it? Um, and we don't really know the answer. At first, we thought maybe it was just regular stuff that we know about, but it's dark, like um, lots of planets, which aren't very bright, or maybe lots of dead stars, which aren't very bright. But as we've gone on and refined our ability to measure how much of those things there are, it's like, no, I don't think so. That can't be it. Um, so it's some other kind of I call it exotic matter, um, and there's kind of crazy names for what they might be, um, just because physicists have a, a sense of humor when they create the names for these particles, like wimps and axions, and <laughs> you know, but but what they actually are isn't really clear. They almost certainly were created in the first few milliseconds after the Big Bang, um, and that is the dominant matter in the universe, dark matter, and um, so it's actually the presence of dark matter that was responsible for collecting um, together to form uh, the galaxies and the galaxy clusters that we see today. The, um, the visible light that we see is just a small amount of, um, tracing a small amount of the matter that's there. Um, so yeah, dark matter is quite interesting. We don't know what it is. People are trying to devise experiments where they might be able to see it. At the beginning, we were talking about the fabric of, of space-time. And um, one of the consequences of Einstein's view of uh, gravity as being a um, curvature in space-time from the presence of mass is that 
light will also be bent as it's traveling through space. So, so light will be traveling along in a straight line, and then it goes near a, a, a massive galaxy, for example, and it can be redirected into a new direction just because space-time is, is curved there. Um, and so we can see that effect. We use the Hubble Space Telescope, and we can see all kinds of really interesting arcs and rings that come from light passing through a very strong gravitational field. And we can look and see, yeah, sure enough, there's a galaxy cluster there. You look at how much mass that we can see in the galaxy cluster, and it's off by a factor of 10 or even 100. Um, and that additional missing mass is this dark matter. Um, and so it's a fascinating problem. It's very frustrating when you're an uh, astronomy professor and you want to teach your students everything that we know, which is a lot, and we teach them about um, how gravity works and how light works and all about our planetary system and all about how stars work and galaxies work. And then at the end of the semester and say, well, everything that we've been talking about so far is just a tiny fraction of what's in the universe. And, you know, 95% of we don't know what it is. Because not only is there dark matter, but there's something called dark energy, which is far more abundant than dark matter. And so we're now in a very peculiar situation. Uh, when you teach a class in astronomy, you're telling people about 5% of the universe, and the other 95% we don't know what it is. So it's, it's difficult. <laughs>